This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. March is Endometriosis Month and around one in nine Australian women of reproductive age will develop endometriosis. And this is according to our Federal Health Department. But on average, it takes seven years to be diagnosed. Good morning. I'm Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, Jane McNaughton, as always joining you from ABC Ballarat. Jane, it feels like not that long ago, only a handful of people even knew what endometriosis was or spoke to you about possibly having endometriosis. So... To a certain degree, it feels like we've come a long way in that we discuss it more and we discuss it openly now. But at the same time, how much work still needs to be done to ensure that women not only get a diagnosis and the fact that it takes seven years to get a diagnosis, but is the treatment and the support there at the moment? And treatment's one thing, Rochelle, whether or not that is successful in everybody, but is there even a cure for this? And how easy is it to access these treatments? And diagnosis, I believe, can also be quite complicated, especially if you're out in the regions. The federal government was recently told the condition was costing the Australian economy $9 billion a year in medical costs and lost productivity. But obviously that's going to have really personal effects for a lot of people if they, for example, can't go to work. What does that mean for them and their family? So for this reason, the government's putting more than $50 million to be set aside for treatment and research into endometriosis. Because if you suspect that you have it, as you said, the surgery that's needed is quite invasive in order to even diagnose that you do have it. So a lot of the times you're just trying to manage the pain of living with it. Changes are being done and research that we're going to learn about today is also being worked on to look at alternative ways to getting a diagnosis. But then how much work needs to also be done just from general practitioners, you know, being able to go in and say, look, I think I have endometriosis and it not being fobbed off for saying it's just period pains. Don't worry about it. Everybody gets it. Or what sort of response do you even get from your own family or friends or school teachers? Then you've got to look at things about how it stops you from participating in life, Jane, in social events or in sporting events as well. So for something that we feels like 10 years ago we didn't talk about. and Or know about. Or know about. That's right. And now we have a month dedicated to it. It feels like it's accelerating and hopefully the changes, even though they've been a long time coming, will be swift. So maybe you're living with endometriosis or someone you love or someone close to you is living with endometriosis. What support would you like to see from awareness, leave entitlements, better access to diagnosis and treatment? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Jane McNaughton, your co-host today, joining you from ABC Ballarat. And a text has come in, Jane, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? What is it? Is it connected to cancer for women? What is it? And I think that is the primary question of the day. So let's get straight into it. Dr. Kate Tyson joins us, gynecologist and director of the Julia Agaru Endometriosis Centre. Kate, good morning. Uh, What is it? Good morning. Thanks for having me. So endometriosis is a common, prevalent, uh, systemic inflammatory condition. It affects, as we've already mentioned, one in nine people assigned female gender at birth in Australia. So very, very common. It's a disease uh, characterised by abnormal placement of tissue. So the tissue that lines the uterus is called the endometrium. And in people with endometriosis, we find tissue similar to that tissue in places other than inside the uterus. And for most people, that's within the pelvis, so attached to structures in the pelvis, like the ovaries or the fallopian tubes or the back of the cervix. And for some people, it can affect other, other structures in the pelvis, like the bowel or the bladder. And it has, in fact, been found in every organ in the body so has been found within noses and eyeballs and brains. Oh, wow. Yes, uncommonly, but definitely possible to be found in places other than the pelvis as well. And so because of that, the nature of the disease being uh, 
affecting lots and lots of organs, uh, it can be difficult to diagnose and it can present with a variety of symptoms for lots of different people. Why is it so painful? The pain that we hear about, and we mentioned then that you are the director of a newly established endometriosis centre, which is the Julia Argaru Centre. And Julia is the philanthropist behind this centre who, along with her husband, helped set it up, who was supposed to join us today and was going to be here and to share her story. And unfortunately, Julia can't be with us today because, Kate, this is what happens with endo is that she's in so much pain today. It's come on unexpectedly that she's unable to join us. I mean, she has blacked out in front of her children since the age of grade six and when she first started to get her period has lived in unbearable pain I think has had 17 operations she's had a hysterectomy she's been lucky enough to, to have children which is rare for those who are living with endometriosis but this is just one example of how it affects your day-to-day life is that she can't be here to spruik something incredible that she's founded and set up yeah, absolutely. Um, so Julia uh, and Michael uh, founded the Julia Argaru Endometriosis Centre at Epworth based on Julia's experience of endometriosis. And Julia is so disappointed to not be here today, but unfortunately suffers like so many people with endometriosis with uh, severe pain. And this pain can be unpredictable. Um, we have to acknowledge, though, not everyone with endometriosis has pain. Some people have infertility, some people have um, other symptoms, but pain can be a very disabling symptom for some patients with endometriosis. And Julia and Michael have a beautiful video that they've made that's on our microsite at at Epworth Endometriosis Centre where they say that their experience of endometriosis is so poor that they just couldn't accept that this is the state of care for endometriosis for women or people assigned female gender at birth in Australia and that led them to starting the Julia Hargrew Endometriosis Centre at Epworth. Um, So pain is driven primarily by lesions of endometriosis which are deposits of this tissue very similar to the tissue that lines the inside of the uterus. And because they're in places that they shouldn't be, they're strongly, strongly inflammatory And so at times when menstruation or ovulation occur, then pain can be exacerbated, as can lots of symptoms of inflammation. Um, And that can affect multiple organs in in the pelvis as well as other areas of the body, including systemic symptoms like bloating and fatigue, which can be really problematic for lots of patients with endometriosis. And it's really under acknowledged how systemic the disease is in nature. A lot of people for years, including Julia, didn't feel comfortable to even talk about their endometriosis. And I know that today's show is dedicated to that. So if you feel like you would like to share your story, maybe what's made it difficult for you, what changes you would like to see, what supports have been helpful, whether it be through workplaces or friends or family, your local GP, we'd love to hear from you today. And on that note, Rochelle, we're already getting some quite heartbreaking stories coming in on the text line. Helen in South Melbourne says it took her almost 20 years to get diagnosed and taken seriously. Each time she presented to a GP, she was put on the back, back onto the pill to control her periods and a few years back the symptoms had gotten so bad she could hardly walk a few days of the month would swell up uh, like she almost like she was pregnant uh it there's it continues to go on with some uh it continues to go on with some of the other horrible things that she's had to deal with Mm. but finally found a gp who took her seriously after 20 years uh, we've also got another one in from Patty saying her daughter was so damaged by endometriosis that she could not have children. So we've got some uh, texts in about that, Kate. Uh, what? So why does it impact your fertility? That's an excellent question. And uh, like everything with endometriosis, there's been a historical lack of funding and we don't have all of the answers to lots of these questions. But there's multiple mechanisms by which endometriosis can affect fertility. I think it's important to remember that most people with endometriosis will be able to have children and for most people they're able to have children you know, naturally or spontaneously without assisted reproduction and assisted reproduction can, like IVF or similar, can uh, assist lots of people. But there is certainly an over-representation of endometriosis in the infertility cohort of people So we know 50% of people with infertility will be found to have endometriosis as the cause or one of the causes of their infertility. 
And the mechanism of that is multi, multimodal. Lots of people with infertility can, uh, sorry, with endometriosis can have pain with intercourse, which of course makes it difficult to conceive a pregnancy if, if intercourse is painful. And we also know that endometriosis can affect egg quality and egg number. So the quality of the egg is a strong predictor of ability to conceive. And so um, many people live their life until they suffer from infertility and then find that they've got endometriosis and in retrospect can look back and say, yes, I did actually have heavy periods and painful periods mm. and, and pain with intercourse um, plus some other associated symptoms. Um, but yes, definitely um, there's there's also some kind of more severe stage of endometriosis. So in terms of staging, we talk about the bulk of disease of endometriosis rather than the symptom burden. But if we look at the bulk of disease of endometriosis, there's stages one through four. And some of the severe stages can also anatomically affect ability to uh, conceive pregnancy by blockage of the fallopian tubes or inability of the ovaries to release eggs. So it's multimodal, multifactorial and and again, inadequately investigated so far. It seems insane, doesn't it, that for something that is so complicated that affects the body in so many different ways that we've only been talking about it and recognising it as real relatively recently and that for so long women have not been believed or they've just been fobbed off. There's texts in saying thank you so much for discussing this. At 43 I'm just currently being diagnosed by my new specialists. For sure it's endo. We're talking about some surgical options as well. This is the Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Jane McNaughton, your co-host today from ABC Ballarat. And Dr Kate Tyson is with you as well, gynaecologist and director of the Julia Arguru Endometriosis Centre, which is a new centre that has been set up specialising in the diagnosis, the research and the treatment of endometriosis. And we'll get into some of the changes uh, that you're looking into, into research, Kate, in just a moment, because in order to to get a diagnosis, it is quite invasive and hopefully there'll be some changes to that down the track. But Chloe Taylor joins us now. Chloe, good morning. Welcome to the Conversation Hour. You're living with endometriosis yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about just what your experience and what your day-to-day life is like with endo? Yeah, of course. So um, I got diagnosed with endo in 2018 um, that was eight years after I started seeking um, an answer for what I was going through. So around my period, I would get extremely nauseous. Um, I'd have extreme pain, wasn't able to sleep, would miss days of school and work because I just couldn't do my day-to-day life. Um, and then, yeah, in 2018, we finally got onto a GP who explained that something called endometriosis existed and referred us on to a specialist. Before you'd heard of endometriosis, Chloe, how did it make you feel? Did you feel like your pain was valid or that you just couldn't handle period pain, for example? Yeah, so a lot of the time when I was going to my GP, it was referred to as just painful periods, just use your things like Panadol, heat packs, things like that. So I think for me, I felt like women everywhere get periods so why am I struggling so much? There's lots of women including Julia who can't be with us today have said that I actually didn't want to talk about it you know I I didn't want to speak openly about it. Why is that Chloe do you think is is it embarrassment is it that you think that you're going through this alone or is it years of not being believed? I think a big part of it is the years of someone not validating that what you're going through is a real thing. So I think it's sort of a bit of embarrassment, like why is it so hard for me? And if no one else is talking about it, then I shouldn't talk about it because it's obviously not a real thing. On that point, Chloe, we've just had a text in uh, saying that medical lectures in the early 80s told us that endometriosis was a psychological condition and it didn't really exist. So it sounds like that sort of sums up how you were feeling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was more of a, you need to learn how to cope with this, not that there was something real going on. It's a lot of head shaking from you, Kate, there. I mean, in the, <laughs> that's the 80s. That's not that long ago that it just wasn't, it was told 
in medical lectures. It wasn't a real condition. Absolutely. And, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, we hear this from patients time and time again, the same message as, as Chloe's heard is that she's sought care and being told, you know, it's okay, it's normal, you know, periods are painful, Um you know, it's a woman's lot in life to have painful periods. And in fact, this is, you know, contradictory to everything we know and believe. And I don't believe anyone should ever have painful periods. You know, in fact, you don't even need to have periods unless you're trying to get pregnant naturally. So the story is just heartbreaking that that, that was the teaching, but there's still that those myths are perpetuated now. And, and it I see it clinically, you know, I see it in my private practice, in my public practice, patients still present told, you know, what you've experienced is normal. And that can be for years and years and years. Chloe, once you got a diagnosis, how did that help you? So once we knew what was going on, um, I had my first surgery and we had the endo removed as much as I possibly could. Um, I then went back 12 months later and found that it had continued to grow. And um, I guess it was more about understanding what was happening and the education to go with it and the long-term effects um, that helped sort of tailor a plan for me as a way of coping, but also as a long-term thing, not just a, okay, you don't want to have the pain, so let's shut off your periods. They needed to take into account, yes, she wants to have children and all these other things. And I suppose that really helped me feel like, okay, there's someone here to help and they know what they're going to do to help me. So what was the next step from there as far as the treatment was concerned and and being able to have children? Um, So after my first surgery, we trial and errored um, a lot of different contraceptives to try and help regulate my period and to minimise those symptoms. Um, And then once we found out that it wasn't really helping and the endo was continuing to grow, we had another surgery at the start of 2019 and found that the endo had caused blockages in my tubes and the scar tissue had um, significantly affected my uterus. So we then were told, if you want to have children, we probably need to start it sooner rather than later. And, yeah, it took us a year to get pregnant with our first baby. Congratulations. Isn't it incredible to think that in the 80s we're told that this is not real and when you hear, Chloe, what you've been through and the amount of surgeries and how life-altering it is, just finally... Chloe, I mean, conversations like today are are so important and texts are saying a similar thing. That's why chats like this are just so vital. What assistance, what help, what support would you like to see so that other women don't have to go through and don't have to wait as long as you did? Yeah, of course. So I think, honestly, bringing it into school programs and more frequently into general practices um, so girls can sort of see okay, these are the symptoms of this. I have a few of those. Maybe I can seek help. It's not just something that I need to go through on my own. Chloe, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. We wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Bye. Chloe Taylor there, only 24 years of age and has had to make that decision to have children earlier. Very early. That's very early. But these are just some of the decisions you need, I guess, to think about. We'll go to calls in just a moment. We'll get to Jenny and Sue. Dr. Kate Tyson is with you, gynecologist and director of the Julia Argaru Centre, which is a relatively new centre established at Epworth Health. Why is the the diagnosis process just so invasive? Is there no other way? I mean, I guess when we think about other things like ovarian cancer, just how hard it is to detect. Why is it just so invasive and hard to detect endometriosis? That's an excellent question. Sorry, excuse me. So endometriosis can present in a variety of different ways in terms of both symptoms that patients experience So then that makes beginning the investigation journey or diagnosis journey tricky because sometimes the symptoms aren't aren't clearly pigeonholed into an easy category of, you know, A, B and C. But then secondarily, we have uh, limitations in what we can and can't see on imaging prior to surgery or without surgery. So the gold standard imaging uh, is a high-quality transvaginal pelvic ultrasound. And so, of course, for a lot of people, imaging with a probe in the vagina is uncomfortable or sometimes even unsuitable, especially for young people. 
And even then we see only disease that is a deep disease or infiltrative disease where the most common initial stages of endometriosis is superficial disease, which you cannot see on on any form of imaging, including ultrasound and MRI. And so there's GPs are are fabulous and they cover a whole range of um, health conditions. It's very difficult for them to be, you know, um, to know everything in in a lot of detail. So I'm certainly not um, saying anything poorly of GPs. But certainly the experience of many patients is that they've got symptoms and then have an ultrasound which doesn't show anything and then are falsely reassured. You know, like you don't have it. Yeah, everything's fine. Your ultrasound's fine. Which um, I suppose would also add to that sort of paranoia, is it just me? Yes, exactly. And this experience or feeling of, uh, you know, inadequacy that Chloe really nicely described, of feeling like, why can't I handle it if everyone else can? Um, and that's a really common patient experience is, is feeling inadequate or feeling unable to manage things when they feel like everyone else that they know can do so. And so... At the Julia Agaru Endometriosis Centre, we are looking at some novel and unique methods for a diagnosis to make it more suitable for patients. So we're currently doing a big trial investigating the utility of MRI in young people in diagnosing endometriosis. And we're currently also in the early stages of a study looking at the use of PET scanning or positron emission tomography using radio-labelled lesions for endometriosis to also see if this is useful. So we need these more funding, more research, more progress in a disease that's been historically quite neglected to be able to get non-invasive early diagnosis without surgery. Jenny joins us on the line from Q. Jenny, what's your experience with endometriosis been? So I'm much older than most of the other callers that have called in um, and mine went undiagnosed for a a very long time. Sorry, I'm a bit emotional. Oh, um, Jenny. Jenny, that's more than more than fine. Um, resulted in being lived so long that they had to take part of my bowel out and a hysterectomy. Um, yeah, so I'm just pleased it's being talked about. Oh, Jenny. I wonder there's, I mean, lots of people have spoken about, there's a, a woman that sent a text in saying that she's going in for a hysterectomy in six to eight weeks and lots of people like you that it ended up resulting in a hysterectomy. And I I wonder, Kate, for Jenny, there will be so many people of Jenny's age that just haven't been believed that now are listening to stories like this. And Jenny, stay with us, but that would think, oh, God, that was me. That was me all of these yeah, years. Totally. Yeah, and no one believed me at school or my parents or whoever it is. Mm. You must be seeing all of these retrospective women coming forward and saying, I told you. Yes, and um, we're seeing lots of uh, daughters of women with the same experience getting a diagnosis and when they come with their mums or when they tell their mums, their mums say, exact, I had exactly the same symptoms and was never believed and never got any relief and I'm so pleased that now the system is changing while it still remains inadequate and there's still a delay that's too long. There's a relief that at least there's some progress, mm. um, certainly for women in, of Jenny's, Jenny's age, yeah. And Jenny, please stay on the line with us. We'd love to continue speaking with you if you feel comfortable with that. But, sure. Yeah. Um, Dr. Kate, how common is it that it is a genetic thing that gets passed down from mother to daughter? Yeah, that's, uh, we know there is a really strong genetic link between uh, patients with endometriosis with an up to 50% correlation with first degree relatives. So, you know, mothers and sisters with endometriosis, then there's a 50% uh, risk of their first degree relative also having endometriosis. But what we don't understand is the end effect. So as we've touched on is that endometriosis can present in a variety of ways. Sometimes patients have no symptoms. Sometimes they've got severe pain, like period pain and ovulation pain. Sometimes they can have infertility, sometimes um, both. And we don't know whether if your mum had, you know, terrible endometriosis that caused loads of pain, whether you'll be that same phenotype or whether you'll be an infertility type of endometriosis patient or a, you know, asymptomatic or no symptom type of endometriosis patient. We don't yet have that information. Mm. Jenny, just finally, did you ever get a diagnosis? Were, were you yeah, ever... I did. Look, I, look, I had a fabulous specialist um, and she took one examination and, and said, oh my goodness, it, mm. it had grown. And in fact, they ended up using my uh, scans 
as imaging as in their lectures um, to show people the extent that it could get to if it was left. Um, and she was fabulous and tried everything to stop it. And I did have, I actually had eight operations over 18 months to try and clear it with the end result being the bowel resection and hysterectomy. But they just, I was just, they say that there's 20% of people that they just can't cure it in. And I was just in that 20%. So um, that's, that's just what can happen if it's left. And and the same as all the other callers, you know, was told it was just something you had to put up with as being part of being a woman. Jenny, thank you so much for sharing your story and you're certainly not alone. And the fact that now that scan is being used in medical lectures when once those medical lectures were telling, you know, potential specialists and doctors... It's all in your head. ...that it's all in your head, it, it's not real. Jenny, thank you. Thank you so much. Sue's called through as well. Sue's in Melbourne. Good morning. Hello. Morning, Sue. You're on air. Oh, g'day. Um, listen, I've had a completely different experience... I was diagnosed with endometriosis in the early 80s by someone who was clearly a particularly brilliant gynecologist. Yes, absolutely. Look at the contrast between getting diagnosed and someone basically just saying you're you're crazy. Making it up. But, I mean, I would have thought that the person, the doctor you go to is a gynecologist and he was through... I mean, I'm happy to mention his name because he went on to become a professor and, you know, Dr. Les Retty, um, legend, and uh, he was through the family planning clinics. So I had been, I don't know why I was attending, but essentially he put me on progesterone and um, and basically cured it. I went on to have three pregnancies after that. The last one was ectopic, unfortunately, so that was the end of that. You know, childbearing process. But the point I did want to make is because endometriosis is an, in, is an inflammatory disease, I went on to have um, rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. I had prolapse discs uh, from when I'm uh, looking after my mum and moving her around in bed. So I'm, I'm just saying that if you, if you can get, get to a gynecologist and get diagnosed early, mm. this was the early 80s. And I mean, my pain with from endo was so bad. I nearly drove off the Westgate Bridge one day. Oh it gosh! Was so bad, and, and I knew this is not normal. So yeah, you know, and I, it just shows you to Sue how important Kate it is to be able to get a diagnosis but also to have that support to have a family planning clinic depending on where you live that maybe you know to be able to even see a gynecologist that i mean you need referrals in order to see a gynecologist there mightn't even be a specialist if you're in regional or rural victoria seeing a gynecologist is not that simple yeah absolutely and this is one of the pillars of uh, the julia argo endometriosis center at epworth when we established the center and looked at what the deficits were we realized that one of the deficits deficits was access and navigation of care for patients with suspected or known endometriosis. And so through the centre, patients can self-refer without a doctor's referral to have an appointment with the nurse coordinator to talk through symptoms and to assess, uh, you know, likelihood or probability of endometriosis. And then uh, that person, that nurse can then guide them on to future care to see particular specialists or allied health specialists or particular GPs um, to help establish a diagnosis more easily. Because we did recognise that one of the barriers to access is needing to have a referral to see a gynaecologist um, and also limited experience of some people, especially in rural and remote areas. Mm. And I, th- I suppose cost would also be a huge factor in this as someone who does need to go to the gynaecologist every few years uh, because of genetic underlying health conditions that my mother had. It's expensive. And uh, there's a message on the line here from Judith saying that she had endometriosis and she was uh, maybe, oh, sorry, from maybe the age of 16 until she was 38, ended up having hysterectomy after countless operations. And the expense was enormous as Medicare and private health cover would not cover it to the same level as, say, a wrist surgery. She can't say exactly how much, but probably $100,000 over the year she's estimating. That's that's completely inaccessible for most people. Mm, that's huge amounts of money, isn't it? Absolutely. And there's been some research actually into the actual financial burden that patients with endometriosis suffer. And it's in the order of about... The research from Australia shows around $30,000 per year. 
Um, and that's so that's where medical costs or loss no, of so income it's both. So it's medical cost and lack of earning or loss of earning. Um, we also know patients with endometriosis are more likely to have limited school attainment, university attainment, less likely to get job promotions, and it's clear that if you're in pain, if you have period pain, if you're bleeding, if you're you know, missing days off work, then you're less likely to put yourself forward for, for those advances. And when we see things like menstrual leave being granted in other countries, I think Spain is one, and there was a lot of pushback on that, you know, oh, is that needed? Mm. It just goes to show why and where and how yes. it can be needed for, for so many different people's lives. Sally's in Safety Beach. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, ladies. What did you want to say? Oh, um, first of all, I just want to commend all the ladies that have spoken and the courage that it takes to speak about something that's quite personal. Amen. Has yeah, such I agree. Impact yeah, on our lives. So I'm about to turn 59 and I was diagnosed with endometriosis very early, wasn't able to have any kids. And I acknowledge that my story is probably a little bit different. And um, as a, I guess a joke, I've been, I've now have four children but I think what amazes me is that I have a daughter who's 36 and a daughter who's 24. Both have been diagnosed with endometriosis. Both have had numerous operations, but there is nothing different that's being offered to them that was offered to me back when I was diagnosed. And the ignorance around um, people thinking it's just a really bad period. And my eldest daughter had to take six months off work to be able to just try and survive and get on top of it. But I, I guess my frustration is that when I've taken them to hospital to have their operations, nothing has changed. And I look at it and think... All the advancements that have come in other um, high-risk diseases, mm. but endometriosis is still one of those um, topics that's seen as, oh, that's just a bad period. And I actually went to a gynecologist, thank goodness I changed, and he had been with me since the beginning. And when I explained that my period, oh, my pain was so bad, and so intense, I hope I'm not going to shock anybody, he actually told me that what I was feeling was probably an orgasm. Wow. And it was at that point that I thought... I need to see somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. But I God. guess what I'd like to know is what is there now other than... I mean, I've had a hysterectomy, um, but other than... Um, going on the pill. My yeah. eldest daughter is facing infertility and has struggled. And my What's youngest one... Yeah. yeah. And Sally, there's lots of people too that have said, you know, what, what has changed? And when we read about Julia's story and Julia, uh, Julia Arguru, who was due to be with us today, who has helped fund and, and set up the new Julia Agaru Endometriosis Centre, has spoken about, you know, all the different pills that she was put on at the time, Kate, that would be the so-called cure. Um, yeah. And there's managing, there's curing, there's a combination of both. I mean, is Sally right? Has it progressed? Sally is right in that there's been very limited progression in available treatments. There's been... There's been advances in the field, without doubt. So certainly there's been advances in surgical techniques, surgical safety. Um, there was a, a decade or so where that was really the push, was how do we safely surgically manage uh, endometriosis? And it's, you know, we haven't mentioned at all adenomyosis, which is where the endometrial tissue goes into the muscle of the uterus. And many people with aden endometriosis also have adenomyosis. Um so certainly there was a lot of surgical advances for a long period of time, which is great. Surgery is now so much safer, much less invasive. Recovery um, should be easier, but acknowledging that it's not easy. The medical treatment of endometriosis still has lots of room to improve because we know that the mainstay is hormonal manipulation trying to decrease the total estrogen relative to the amount of progesterone because we know progesterone suppresses lesions of endometriosis. 
there are some advances. So we're looking at, um, through the centre, looking at some non-hormonal options. There's a really beautiful study currently happening through Deakin comparing cognitive behavioural therapy and yoga for the treatments of pain related to endometriosis. We know that there's some studies related to acupuncture. and We know that there's some new medications coming into the market which uh, suppress, they're still hormonal manipulation, but they suppress uh, ovulation completely and, but give a little bit of estrogen back. And so that's a new medication that's yeah. only been available in the end of 2022. And we would hope now that things will start to accelerate as centres like yours are being set up. And we're going to hear from one in Ballarat in just a moment as well as conversations are starting to happen around treatment diagnosis, even menstrual leave, that the additional treatments and the alternative treatments and the money and the funding that's needed to go along with those will start to accelerate at the same time. This text is just so great to hear women speaking about this illness. I've suffered the pain and heavy periods my entire life. I was always just put on numerous pills and told a hot water bottle will do the trick. This is the Conversation Hour. We're talking endometriosis today. Good morning. My name is Rochelle Hunt, your co-host Jane McNaughton, joining you from ABC Ballarat. And in the studio, Dr. Kate Tyson, a gynecologist and director of the Julia Argaru Endometriosis Centre, established just last year at Epworth Health. This wonderful text, and I'm so glad we got this. It's anonymous, but thank you for sending it. I'm a bloke, and I hope that there are other blokes taking note of this subject and realise what women have to go through and sometimes the raw deal in life they get and what they have to put up with. And I want to acknowledge that this is a conversation not just for women. Yes, it affects women, but it affects everybody in their life, their partners, their brothers, their colleagues, their friends. The support network. The support network. And I also want to acknowledge that there's a program that we did and you can go back through the Conversation Hour podcast and have a listen with a group of incredible women. We're at the MCG. We were sitting up in the broadcast box there and we were talking about some of the advances in female sport in understanding menstrual cycle. And a dad rang in who's also the coach of uh, his daughter's football club and two of his daughters live with endometriosis. And the the length of which he educated himself around endometriosis, what it meant, the way he spoke to his players, to the parents of his players to say, look, if you can feel comfortable to speak to me, but if you don't, there's someone else you could speak to, made changes to the uniforms, to the way they trained and how they trained. So this is certainly not just a conversation for women. Alexis Wolfe is the CEO of Endometriosis Australia. Alexis, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. Plenty of calls for us still to get through and so many texts. Do you feel like there has been a shift in the last couple of years under just acknowledging and understanding endometriosis? Yes, look, first, thank you for having me. And absolutely, there's been a real shift within the community around endometriosis awareness and Endometriosis Australia has worked incredibly hard to to lift that awareness amongst not only patients but the wider community. It's really, um, to your point earlier around support networks, it's really important that as a community we truly understand what an endometriosis patient goes through so that we can better equip ourselves to help and understand what support we can provide um, as, you know, friends, family, colleagues. Um, But then as Endometriosis Australia, our role is really to ensure that we are empowering endometriosis patients to to navigate the health system the best that they can with the available resources that they have within their location so that they can get the best healthcare outcomes for their individual symptom presentation. Alexis, it's encouraging to see that the government has announced it will spend just under $60 million over the next four years on new clinics across uh, all states and territories in Australia. Does that give you some heart? Like what what role does government actually play in this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's actually um, just over 16 million of that um, 58 million that will go towards these clinics. There will be 16 clinics that will be uh, appointed across the country with a minimum of one in every state and territory and then the rest um, allocated based on population and need. We desperately need more clinics. I was I mean, going to say, yeah, it feels like it'll barely yeah. touch the surface, it's, especially it in rural communities. 
Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's wonderful to have Dr. Tyson on here today from the Julia Argru um, Endometriosis Centre because it really is a leading centre in terms of the opportunity it provides patients. If we could have these centres right across the country supporting um, patients, then we would we would be in a much better position. But, you know, the commitment from the federal government to have these clinics is a wonderful first step and it will drastically help for people in those those immediate locations to get support but we're yet to see really a where these locations are going to be and then b you know how many people they really are going to be able to see per year and what referral pathways they will have available to them based on connections to community and opportunity for um you know the different multifaceted support that is needed for such a complex disease for treatment, obviously, you've got diagnosis and having access to these facilities is vital. But once, if you haven't got the money to get there, it sort of mm-hmm. makes it a lot more difficult. So is there Medicare rebates or any support from government in, in financially to assist people with endometriosis or people that suspect they might have it? Look, so there's nothing specifically for endometriosis patients, but across every state and territory, there are rebates for people that live in remote or um, regional areas to um, compensate for travel that may be required for medical treatment. Now, that's available to all patients um, should they need it, but it really doesn't, I guess, touch the the size in terms of the true cost. And as um, Dr Tyson alluded to, you know, patients are paying, um, you know, around $30,000 a year in both direct and indirect um, medical costs. And it's significant, you know, if these people aren't able to to work and hold down full-time jobs and are needing to go to part-time employment to manage their symptoms, then they're really on the back foot in terms of being able to afford healthcare in a country that actually um, perpetuates that it has a, a, a medical framework that provides free healthcare to its to its um, patients. So really, it's it's there's a lot that needs to be done for endometriosis patients um, to be able to ensure that for this complex disease that is lifelong, it's not something that can be solved within a year, there is no cure. Um, They need more support to be able to manage their symptoms Mm. as they change throughout their lifetime. Just finally, Alexis, what role could workplaces play here, especially sort of bigger corporate workplaces, government workplaces? If you know, menstrual leave or an acknowledgement of endometriosis is somehow worked into the framework that is legitimised within uh, your working role and, and title and by others in the workplace. How far does that change things? So that then at least, if nothing else, women are getting paid to be able to get treatment or to take time off or they have the confidence to be able to go for roles and positions and work in places that previously they thought that they couldn't because they knew that there would be maybe a couple of days a month where they might be able to work but from home or not be able to make it into the office. Absolutely. So Endometriosis Australia is actually leading um, a program that we're called Endo at Work and we're actually developing a framework for employees and employers to navigate conversations around endometriosis in the workplace. It's critical for us to start having this conversation in a more constructive way. And I guess the challenge that we have for a lot of individuals is that they don't really want to disclose their health condition to their manager Mm. or their HR department, and they don't necessarily need to. But we need to help educate them in terms of how they can ask for what they do need. So, for example... You know, research that we did in 2021, um, you know, said that actually 50% of endo-warriors said a lack of flexibility in the workplace is actually a significant problem. You know, one in three have said that they've been passed over for promotion and one in six have lost their jobs due to managing their endometriosis symptoms. The the stats keep going. But really what they're asking for is just um, very small and achievable things that workplaces can do, whether that's um, flexibility in terms of their hours, which is either um, a short-term thing because they're recovering from surgery or it could be a longer-term thing based on their symptom presentation and the way that they actually mm. um, need to take medications. Um, it could be access to um, a supportive chair because of the type of pain that they experience. It could be physical aids like having heat packs and props 
um, you know, introduction of 20-minute rest breaks. You know, endometriosis patients are not necessarily asking for huge amounts of um, change, but these things have been identified by endometriosis patients to have a significant impact on the way that they feel supported by their workplace mm. and are able to manage their symptoms. So, you know, we really do welcome workplaces potentially yeah. moving Talk forward about to it. Do it. Have, it. have these conversations and to possibly look at menstrual leave, you know, if that is something that is inclusive for not only endometriosis patients, but, you know, for the wider community who menstruate and those other conditions, then that's fantastic. But it really isn't something that necessarily is going to help for the person who's, you know, working in the local hairdresser or, you know, is um, at the local fish and chip shop. Or, um, and those individuals need to have that support as well. So our Endometriosis Australia and work program is going to be incredibly helpful because it's Good going to target certain organisations and industries and make sure that it's bespoke for them. Alexis Wolf, CEO of Endometriosis Australia, I think on behalf of many people that have been texting <laughs> in, thank you for your work and thank you for your time Absolutely. to say on the conversation hour. Thank you for having me. And if anyone would like to uh, learn a bit more about the work of Endometriosis Australia, you can head online to endometriosisaustralia.org. Uh, we have Michelle on the line from Coburg. Michelle, welcome to the conversation now. Hi there, how are you going? Not too bad. How about yourself? What's your experience? Uh, I diagnosed about maybe five years ago, had similar similar stories to most of the people here. Um, so I had it my whole life and then was only diagnosed a few years ago, really two major surgeries, um, you know, endo-infiltrating bowel surgery, the whole lot. Wow. Um, but one of the things that was interesting that I think is really important, and given it's um, International Women's Day, I'm just was conscious of how the first attempt, the first part of it for me was when I was 13 and I got my period and I had days of school, mum was worried, so she took me to a gyno who suggested to my parents that the reason that I was there was really because I wanted to go on the pill so I could have sex with people, which... Um, you know, as a as a thirteen year old in pain, mm. the impact of that on women's identity, yeah. mm. sexual identity, you know, it's taken me a whole lifetime really to recover. And I mean, I still battle with the disease every day, but you know, oh, the Michelle, I'm so sorry you had that experience. And you know what? I'm actually I don't. I, I shouldn't be surprised by this at all, but the amount of women like yourself that go back decades around how this has impacted you and just how emotional it is and for how long maybe you've had to either hide it or suppress something or, or keep it from people and the emotion that is attached with endometriosis, it goes without saying, Dr. Kate Tyson, doesn't it, that this is something, I mean, there's a text here that says this is such an outstanding program on endometriosis. I'd love to see big businesses donate to endometriosis research for International Women's Day instead of token pink cupcakes. Yes, I want to hug that person <laughs> because if I see another pink cupcake on International Women's Day when we're talking about things like this, I just want to scream. This is an emotional. It affects people's waking lives for yeah. decades and decades. Yes. Yeah, there's rarely a patient that I would look after that isn't brought to tears at some stage by the experience that they've had. And this is in Melbourne, you know, metropolitan Australia. We're a wealthy country. We should have resources at our fingertips. And we still have women suffering daily without any relief. And the the experience, the endometriosis journey is so, so poor still. And this is one of the tenets of the Julia Agra Endometriosis Centre is, and from Julia and Michael, from we just can't accept that this is the way things no. are. So really trying to change the landscape and climate of endometriosis care and experience in Australia. And it's certainly not just Metro Melbourne, even mm. though we have a lot of women here. So let's go to Ballarat. Bridget Maloney is the director and owner of Ballarat's Women's Clinic. And Bridget, you've been listening to a lot of this. First things first, thank you for taking it to the regions. Jane McNaughton, your co-host today, of course, in Ballarat as well. Hello, everyone. How important is it to give access to regional women? I mean, it goes without saying, doesn't it? But it, how much work needs to be done in that area? Well, I think we've got to remember that we're still one in nine. So the effects of endometriosis is still here in the regions and rurally. So what we need to do is look at, well, is there a difference? And we actually think that there is. Um, and the challenge for regional women with endometriosis really does start back at 
we think, the primary care level. So um, there's fewer female GPs uh, in rural and regional Victoria. We heard on the news earlier that, you know, that a lot of those women are working part-time um, and so that happens with GPs too. So it's harder for our patients to get patient um, appointments with the GPs. There's longer wait times. And if you talk about, well, if you're going through an endo flare, what do you do in regional and rural Australia? And often that is that you end up at the emergency department at our regional hospitals. Yeah. And we know that they're excellent, but it's perhaps not the most appropriate place to be treating a chronic um, condition such as endo. Um, so yeah, I'm, I picked out a little stat and that is in 2019, uh, the inner regional centres had the highest rate of endo related hospitalisations. And I'm just not surprised at that figure. Is there a large amount that you would suspect of women who are undiagnosed? I would, I don't know those figures, um, but you know, I, let's extrapolate and say possibly. I think that the time of diagnosis is also possibly longer. Um, but what we're also concerned about is say that, you know, most people get referred to the public clinic. Um, and so that also is a longer wait. Um, the time to get the appointment at the clinic perhaps isn't so bad, but then how long does it take that person to have a diagnosis? So they, whether it's MRI or laparoscopic surgery or whatever it is, um, are we measuring the right metric? Are we measuring what the outcome is mm. for that woman? Just finally, Bridget, because as we're heading to the news, but we're seeing government money, federal money being allocated towards endometriosis. Would you like to see a, a large chunk of that to regional and rural areas? Because, I mean, we can't have people presenting at emergency. I mean, that goes without saying. They need specialised clinics. Yeah, and they need... So two things that we can see in, in the public system is that we need more funding towards specialist training. I think that's really important and COVID made a huge hit in how many cases our trainee specialists were exposed to um, because endometriosis was a Category 3 surgery. So there just wasn't as much happening for them to train and learn um, on. Mm. Um, and we need to incorporate some multidisciplinary care. So we've talked about things such as uh, physiotherapy, um, dietitian, yeah. um, psychological help. And that's, you know, in a private setting, we can do that. Like at the Ballarat Women's Clinic, we're sort of nimble and, and you know, we can attract. Yeah, but just to be able help. to broaden that access yeah. out, incredible. Bridget, thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry that it's short, but we really appreciate it. No, I love all the calls. It's great to hear. <laughs> yeah, they're incredible. Bridget Maloney, the director and owner of Ballarat's Women's Clinic. Dr. Kate Tyson, thank you so much for your time and for your tireless work in this area. Gynecologist, director of the new, just opened late last year, the Julia Arguru Endometriosis Centre at Epworth. Can you thank Julia for us next time you see her? I because absolutely will. She needs a huge collective hug from everybody that has called and sent me messages today. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the family and the donations and donations, we've also got lots of other private donors and other affiliations with us since the establishment of the centre enables us to do the things that all the calls have called up about. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.